they devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 4, 32 through 35. The believers shared their possessions. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully a work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you here today. Happy Mother's Day. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. And if you're wondering why I am walking funny today, it's because yesterday I went on my first motorcycle ride with Tim Lindstrom. And for three hours, I sat behind him in a seat that was not designed for someone who is six foot one to sit in for that length of time. My hips are killing me. Uh, here's a picture of the two of us uh, on our trip. Yep, I told Tim, I was like, man, Dumb and Dumber could not be a better description of the two of us riding a motorcycle together. This was the real picture. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't really look that much different in my opinion. So either way, man, my hips are just, just killing me. So if I'm a little bit rigid and weird looking today, more weird than normal, that's why. So with that being said, I'd like to invite you to join me as uh, we pray, as we look at this passage here this morning. God, we come to you today and we are in awe of your generosity that you have poured out on us. Lord, we are lost for words to describe the abundance that is in your world around us and the goodness that you have poured out on us. We thank you for being generous. We thank you for being kind to us. We thank you for loving us. And we pray that as we think about generosity this morning that you would... Help us understand your heart for generosity. Help us understand and to see clearly your generosity displayed in the work of your son, Jesus. And Lord, help us to become generous people. Help us to become increasingly more and more generous. Lord, we ask for 
you right now to come and to open our eyes to what this passage has to teach us. We pray, O oh God, that above all that you would help us see your son Jesus and that as a result of that we would become deeply generous. That our hearts would be filled with love for others and, and generosity. And we ask that you would do this in the name of your son Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. Some of the best people to be around are generous people. I don't think that I have to do a whole lot to convince you of this, that people who are generous, people who are other-oriented, people who think about others first, are just far more enjoyable to be around than people who think of themselves first, people who are stingy. One of the people that I've come to find out is the most, one of the most generous people I know is my five-year-old daughter. Her name is Chloe, and if you know Chloe, you may know something of this. This has really come out in the last uh, couple months here in particular. You know, we just came out of Easter, and so she has this like giant bucket of Easter candy uh, that she got from here and from grandma and grandpa and from us at home. So she's got this giant bucket of her Easter candy with chocolate and jelly beans and all this like wonderful, delightful stuff that every five-year-old loves. And then that's in addition to the regular like treat bucket that she has where she, you know, every day in the afternoon they have a snack and they have a treat and they get to choose one of those. And so she's got just this massive haul of all this like really good stuff. And in the last couple months, uh, it's become more common that she comes up to me every once in a while and she says, here, Pop, I got some jelly beans for you. And I'm like, Chloe, those are your jelly beans. Those are your special jelly beans that you got and those are for your special time, for your, for your treat time. And she says, I know, Papa, but I want you to have some. And she'll come up with a piece of chocolate that she had broken in half and she'll come up and give it to me and say, here, Papa, I got some chocolate for you. I'm like, honey, this is, this is your treat. This is yours. If you give this to me, you're going to have less for yourself. And she says, I know, but I have a lot. And so my five-year-old daughter, I guess what's, what's kind of shocking to me about this is that, you know, I, I don't really know of many uh, young people who are thinking about chocolate and candy that way. You know, most of the time when you see like a young person, they're like, give me the candy, give me the chocolate, give me the sweets. <laughs> and so to find, to have a, a daughter who is so generous, just totally uncompelled, we're not asking her for her treats, she just genuinely wants us to be happy. And so she'll come give us uh, treats like that. And it's a beautiful thing. I think we've all probably experienced something like that in our lives. Maybe it's not from a five-year-old, but we've experienced generosity in some ways. And I think we all know that it's life-giving to be around people who are generous. It's life-giving to be around people who are other-oriented. It's life-giving to be around people who are willing to disadvantage themselves so that other people can benefit. That's, in essence, what generosity is. Generosity is saying, here's the pool of resources I have. I'm going to choose to take a portion of these and give them away. I'm going to take resources I could spend on myself and I'm going to give them away so that others can flourish, so that others can uh, benefit. That's the heart of what generosity is and we all know that this is life-giving and that the best people to be around are people who are generous. As followers of Jesus, this should not in the least bit surprise us because we have a God who is generous. And what that means is that generosity is built into the very fabric of creation. Generosity is built, it's woven into the fabric of how God has designed his world to operate. And so when we see generosity happen, 
You know, there's those times where you see something, you see someone be generous, and, and you know, for some of us, it, it would maybe bring you to tears. There's something that emotionally that happens inside of us when we see or experience generosity, and we have this moment of realizing this is the way that things are supposed to be. And conversely, when we see examples of someone who has excessive amounts of wealth, more than they need, and they see others in need, and they choose to be stingy and not generous with their money, there's something inside of us that says, that's not right. Something is not right about this person's use or withholding of their generosity. So generosity is built into the very fabric of the way that God has designed the world, and it's because it's a reflection of the very character of God himself. We've been in a short message series. Uh, These weeks after Easter, we've got today and then next week uh, left in this series. It's a short series on the subject of money. Uh, You know, we talk a lot about whole life generosity, but it's important from time to time to talk specifically about money. The Bible has a lot to say about money. Jesus has a lot to say about money. And so we would do well to listen to what the Bible has to say about it. And so we've been talking so far about ownership. We talked about ownership and saw that God owns everything. From there, we talked about stewardship. If God owns everything, what that means is that I don't own everything. I'm a steward of someone else's resources. I'm a steward of God's resources, and he has commissioned, he has tasked me and all of us to wisely invest and steward the resources that he has given us. And so today, we're moving on to talk about the subject of generosity in particular. And what we're gonna see as we look at these passages today is we're gonna see something of the importance of generosity, We're going to see the motivation for generosity, and then we're going to end by thinking about, okay, how do we do it? How do we actually uh, cultivate a life of generosity? What are maybe some practices that we can put in place in our lives that can help us become more generous? So first, let's think together about the importance of it, and the first thing we can observe in this passage is this. We can observe the centrality of generosity in following Jesus. These two passages that you heard read this morning are from the book of Acts. And the book of Acts tells us about the early days of the Jesus movement. It tells us about the early days of uh, this thing called the church. And one of the things that we see very clearly as we read the book of Acts, if we have eyes to pay attention to what it's telling us, one of the things that the book of Acts makes really clear is that generosity is a defining mark of those who follow Jesus. We see this by just observing the way that Luke tells us the story. Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts. And the way he tells us that story shows us the central part that generosity plays in the life of the early church. And we belong to the same movement. And so the same thing ought to be true of us as well. So let's look at the text and see how we see it. In Acts chapter 2, you heard this passage read. Acts chapter 2 tells us about one of the most important moments in the entire New Testament. And that is the day of Pentecost. Jesus has ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. And he promised his disciples that it would be better that he leaves so that he can send the Holy Spirit. So that God's life-giving, life-generating presence can be with and can be among and can dwell with his people. And so the book of Acts chapter 2 tells us about that day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came on the people. We then see, after being told about the Holy Spirit coming, we read what characterized that early church. We see sort of a snapshot, a little bit of a vignette of uh, what this group of people was like. And in the passage you heard read, we, we hear that they devoted themselves to learning and applying the apostles' teaching. 
They devoted themselves to one another in relationships. They were together daily in the temple courts. They were in each other's homes. They were sharing meals together. They were walking through life together in the context of relationships. And so they were deeply committed and devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to each other in relationships, and they were also devoted to generous living. Listen, right in the middle of this passage that summarizes what the early church was like, it says in verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So just notice the pattern here. Notice what's happening. We see the life-giving presence of God comes to be with his people. The Spirit fills the people, and the result is, one of the results that Luke tells us about is that they were generous, that they viewed their money completely differently. They didn't view their money exclusively as their own, but they were radically transformed in the way that they viewed their resources and went so far as those who had excess resources. And just uh, by way of information, in the, in the first century world, about f- uh, between 4 and 6% of the population was the wealthiest of the wealthy. There was about 10% that was middle class, and about 80 to 85% of basically everybody was, uh, was like poor, <laughs> wasn't the b- bottom end of the socioeconomic uh, status, okay? So not everybody had the resources to do this, but from time to time, they were generous in selling property and giving it to those who had need. And so we see this, uh, we see this being communicated to us, is that of all the things that Luke could tell us about the early church, of all the things that he could communicate of importance about what characterized them, what was this group of people like, he tells us that when they lived a spirit-filled life, generosity was the result. When the life-giving presence of God came to be with the people, the result was that they got real generous with their possessions and with their money. And so that's what we see in this first passage. And then if you just flip the page over in the book of Acts to chapter 4, the passage, uh, one of the other ones you heard read, we read about, uh, there's a couple of the early church leaders who were brought before the religious leaders of the Jewish movement at the time, and they are commanded, do not preach this man Jesus anymore. You can't talk about Jesus. And basically, they say nuts to you, and they leave, and they go out, and they meet with another group of believers, and they pray together, and we're told in Acts 4, verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So once again, the people are filled with the Spirit. And then the very next thing we're told, verse 32, all the believers were in one heart and mind. They shared everything they had. There was no needy persons among them. From time to time, people sold property and gave to those who were in need. So again, you see the pattern of two times in the early part of the book of Acts, it says the Holy Spirit came upon the people, and then the result of that was that they were really generous. Then in chapter four, they were filled with the Spirit, and then we're told that they were really, really generous. And so this is the pattern we see taking place here, is that generosity is a defining mark of those who follow Jesus. Of those early church members, what we're being told is that for them, generosity with their money and their possessions, that was a defining characteristic, a defining mark of who they were. And the question then for us is, does that define me as well? We have to remember that we are a part of the same Jesus movement that they were a part of. We have to remember 
that the Holy Spirit that was poured out on the people at Pentecost is not a different Holy Spirit than we've been given if we trust Jesus by faith and have been given new life in him. We have the same Holy Spirit, we're a part of the same Jesus movement, and so the question is, does what characterizes them also characterize us? Could we say that this kind of generosity characterizes our lives as well? We'll talk more about that in just a few moments. But before we get there, I think it's important that we uh, move on just to observe the motivation for generous living. Okay, not only is it important to see that, just to observe that generosity is a defining mark of those who follow Jesus, I think it's really important that we take time to ask the question, okay, what motivated their generosity? We've said this all throughout this series, and I'll say it again. Uh, here at Elmwood, we won't use tactics of guilt or shame or manipulation when we talk about money because we know that ultimately those things don't deeply change us. You know, you can sort of jerry-rig your heart you can sort of manipulate people into doing an action for a time, but manipulation doesn't change the human heart. Manipulation doesn't build character inside of a person, and so we don't, we're not going to use those tactics of guilt and manipulation when we talk about money. And so the question is, okay, well, what did motivate them? And we get a clear picture of it here in the text. So just notice this. We're told in the book of Acts chapter 4, in verse 32 to 35, that whole little paragraph there is about generosity. It's about them being of uh, unified in heart, unified in spirit. It's about them giving, not viewing their, their possessions just as their own, but viewing them in a way as, uh, they, they viewed them in such a way that they, they realized they had some form of obligation to one another. We're a family. We're in this together. They sold property and gave to one another. And smack dab right in the middle of all this, there's this verse that may look a little bit out of place, verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And you're like, you're just sitting there telling me all these things about how generous this community was, and then sort of stuck in the middle is like, hey, and also the apostles continued to talk about the resurrection. And you're like, that seems like kind of a weird thing to put in there. I think the reason why that's in there is it's telling us what it is that actually fueled and motivated their generosity. It's the proclamation of the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, my guess is that many of us here today, probably most of us, are sitting there asking, our, you know, asking the question to ourselves, what in the world does the resurrection have to do with generosity? How, okay. How is it that believing Jesus rose from the dead, how does that make me a generous person? What's the connection? And that's a great question that we need to think about. Let me just summarize it this way. The resurrection reminds us of the generosity of God and it guarantees that the best is yet to come. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead reminds us of the generosity of God. The reality is that there would be no resurrection to speak of if God did not first generously give us his son. So the resurrection is in some ways sort of a stand-in for thinking of all of God's saving work throughout the Old Testament and into the Jesus movement. You've got an entire Bible that's filled with talk, with talk about the, the patience of God, the long-suffering of God, how he loved his people, he pursued his people. He was generous to them when they did not deserve generosity. And finally, that was culminated in God sending us his very son, the greatest act of generosity that we see in scripture or in the entirety of human history. 
So as we look to the resurrection, what that reminds us of is the generosity of God for us. God did not leave us floundering and dead in our sin. He did not leave us floundering and spiritually uh, without any resources. God himself generously, he did not have to, and yet he generously poured out his love on us, gave us his son, and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead reminds us of the generosity of God. Not only this, the resurrection reminds us that we are guaranteed that the best is yet to come. Every aspect of God's world was created good. If you go back to the book of Genesis and look at Genesis 1 and 2, you get a, you get a sense of this. You see God creating all these wonderful, beautiful things. We see these different aspects of creation, and every single time, it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was very good. And so you've got this God who creates a world that is filled with abundance, a world that is bursting at the seams. It's not just filled with abundance. It's filled with super excessive abundance, because that's a reflection of what kind of God he is. But then the world as we experience it has been corrupted and tainted by sin. God is so generous, he's created our world as this place that's so packed with opportunity. There's so many good things to see and smell and taste and touch and experience, good pleasures, good food, good drink, all of this. God has created our world as a place overflowing with abundance, and yet we don't experience it that way. We experience it as tainted by sin. But the resurrection, the good news of the resurrection, is that one day, God will make it all right again. One day, God will return, Jesus will return, and this world will be renewed, it will be restored. The good news of the resurrection is that sin and death will not have the last word in God's world. And what that means is that every area where we experience the brokenness of sin in our world, it will be undone. We will begin to experience relationship with God the way we were intended to, and we will begin to experience God's world the way that we were intended to. You know, this, the, I don't have a verse for this, okay? So this, maybe just put this in the bucket of like John's musings, okay? <laughs> in their current condition, our bodies can't, experience God's world the way it was intended to be experienced. Think about it like this. You think of the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, the most awe-inspiring thing you've ever seen, the most wonderful, pleasurable thing you've ever experienced, the best moments of relational intimacy, the best food, the best drink, whatever it is, the best thing that you have ever experienced is muted by the presence of sin inside of our bodies and inside of our world. It's like you got this, just imagine you have this beautiful picture you took of maybe some flowers or something, and it's, it's bright, it's vibrant, there's so much contrast to it, it just it pops off the screen, and, and you just look at it and you're like, wow, that's so amazing. And on your computer, you take the saturation slider and you drag it all the way down to zero, and all of a sudden that picture that's so beautiful and vibrant and filled with life and beauty all of a sudden becomes this kind of like washed out, like muted kind of like, well, like I can see what it is, but it's not really that compelling. It's not really, it's not what it's supposed to be. I think that's in some ways the way we experience life in the world in its current broken state. 
is that yes, we experience so many things. Please don't hear me saying that our world is awful and there's nothing good to be experienced and it's all just this sort of like miserable pity party. I'm not saying that. Even in its broken condition, God's world is still filled with so many good things to experience. And in his mercy, God has enabled us to experience those things. And I think one day when we experience life in new resurrection bodies, we will begin to understand fully, oh, this is what we were supposed to be experiencing. This is what it was supposed to be like. We're not physically capable of experiencing life the way that God has intended us to experience it because of the presence of sin. And the good news is that Jesus rose from the dead. Satan and sin and death and evil will be cast out of our world and we will get new, glorious, resurrected bodies and get to live in a renewed, restored world where we can experience it the way that we were designed to. And so the resurrection is good news for us. Okay? This is what motivated their generosity. This is what ought to motivate our generosity. We want to be generous because he is generous. We want to be generous because God is generous and because we love him, because we're compelled by him. We don't live generously only because God has commanded us to do it. We live generously because we look at who he is, what he's done for us. Our hearts are filled with thanksgiving and that leads us to say, God has been so generous. I want to reflect his character. I want the people around me to experience something of the goodness of God that I've experienced and so we live generously. In addition, We know the best is yet to come. And what that means is that we no longer have to be enslaved to money or what it can purchase for us. We no longer have to look at our money and possessions as things that are, things that we have to use because we have to have these experiences, we have to have these pleasures, we have to have these conveniences because, man, life is short and then you die. No, what we are promised is a renewed world a renewed body that will begin to experience the world the way that we were designed to. And so what that means is that we recognize the best is yet to come. And so that leads us to say, I don't need to be enslaved to these things. I don't need to have these things. Sure, I would want them. And sure, if God gives me the ability to have them, it's not bad for me to experience good things. And yet we don't have to be hoarders of our money and resources, hoarding them for those experiences because the best is yet to come. And so that's how the generosity of God in the resurrection, that's how it makes us generous people. So this is the motivation for them. It should be the motivation for us. We see what God has done for us in Jesus in the resurrection and that ought to make us generous people. But lastly here, we need to just think for a moment about, okay, how do we live a generous life? Okay, what we've just talked about here this morning, that is the place where generosity starts. That's like baseline foundational There's so much more to it than just mentally knowing the things that we've just talked about. We have to actually put this into practice. And so the question is, okay, what does it look like for us to cultivate a life of generosity? What are some maybe practices that we can put in place that will help us become increasingly more generous people? So I wanna just, in the last few minutes here, just talk about some of these practices that we could incorporate into our lives. Uh, You may find some of these more helpful than others. That's okay. You may feel like, you know, some of these are quite remedial. I know this stuff already. I've been practicing this. Great. And also, it's good to be reminded. And so, my prayer is that these would be uh, helpful for stirring our thinking, helpful for being sort of a just uh, baseline place to start as we think about generosity. And then in the context of your own finances, 
in your own family, we get to work out, okay, what does that look like for us to actually take these things and live generously in our own lives? So let's think about cultivating a life of generosity. What does that look like? Uh, Number one, I would uh, do some self-assessment. Do some self-assessment of your current level of generosity. Okay, so maybe think about it on a scale of one to 10. 10 being my heart desires to be generous and I have a plan for being generous and I regularly act out and live out that plan to be generous because I want to. That's like, that's number 10. Then on the other side, there's number one, which is uh, I'm honestly somewhat reluctant to be generous. If I'm honest, I'm a little bit, uh, I'm apathetic towards it. I don't think about it a whole lot. Or maybe I'm fearful of being generous because if I give money away, you know, I don't have a lot, so what's, you know, what if I have a crisis that comes up? What if, what if this, what if that? And there's all these what ifs that come along with it. And so I'm maybe uh, reluctant, I'm maybe fearful to be generous. And I also have no plan whatsoever for being generous. My generosity is sporadic and unplanned. So those are the sort of the two ends of the spectrum. And maybe ask yourself, okay, where do I find myself on that continuum of I want to be generous, I plan to be generous, and I don't really care about generosity, and I certainly don't practice it the way I should. Where do you find yourself? Just do some self-reflection and self-assessment of your own finances and ask yourself the question, where would I identify myself on, uh, on that scale, that continuum, the spectrum of generosity? So once you've done some self-assessment, uh, secondly, pray for a generous heart. Pray for a generous heart. You know, sometimes, sometimes we have to do what we know is right and what we know is true, even if uh, we don't have all the emotions to go along with it. Ever had to do anything like that in life? If we sat around and waited till our emotions told us, you ought to be radically generous, when do you think we would start being generous? Pretty much never, right? Okay, there's this sort of uh, war that's, it, that exists in, internally inside of us. We simultaneously see that generosity is a good thing. We love to see stories of generosity. We certainly love when people are generous to us. We would probably all, to some degree, say that we want to. We should be generous people. And yet there's something inside of us that can be hesitant to be generous. Because then we actually have to have skin in the game with it. And it's, it's the resources that we have. And that means less for me. And it means less things that I may want to do with my money. Right? So we live in this kind of tension of... Yes, we, we know we should be generous. Yes, we want to. And yet, when it comes down to it, sometimes I'm a little bit reluctant to do it. And so if we sat around waiting for us, waiting for ourselves to just feel this overwhelming sense of like, wow, now is the time, you know, and it's going to always be this way. Like, I'm always going to have this feeling, this emotion of, you know, delight when I'm generous to someone else. You're not going to be generous at all. <laughs> and so sometimes... We need to do what we know is right and do what we know is true and trust God that our hearts and our emotions will catch up with us later. Sometimes they do. Sometimes you experience moments of, of you, you get a sense of God's pleasure over you giving your money away. And other times, you do it and you feel nothing. And that's okay. But we have to pray for God to give us a generous heart. And I'm convinced that if we actually prayed that God would do that, do you think he would turn down that prayer request? 
Do you think that our Heavenly Father would say, no, I'd rather just let you live as a stingy, ungenerous person? No, when we pray for a generous heart, God will give it to us. And so do some self-assessment, pray for a generous heart, pray for opportunities to be generous. Third, I, I mean, I confess that I rarely pray for opportunities for God to help me see what I don't already see. You know, I'm in a season of life where I have two small children at home and I have a very demanding job. And uh, a lot of times I'm just out like doing my own business. I, I try to be like really productive and really a wise steward of my time. And so I'm very like particular about like I'm gonna do this and then I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna go here and I'm gonna go there. And it's all like planned out and scripted for me, which means that I can be like living in my own little tunnel and just completely oblivious to the needs of the people around me. And so we gotta pray for opportunities to be generous, but not only opportunities to be generous, with this, we gotta pray for the discernment to know which are the opportunities that God wants us to invest in. Because we all know that the opportunities for being generous are out there. The opportunities for us being generous, the things we could give our money to, are unending. And so the question is, okay, it, it, not only you know, do I even see what's out there, but also do I have the discernment and the wisdom of God the Spirit to know when I see a need to say, you know, I don't think God is wanting me to invest here. And then at another time, to see a need and to say, you know, I, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't get it, but I think God wants me to give money here. Do we have, are we cultivating that kind of discernment? Are we praying for opportunities to be generous? Are we praying for the wisdom to know when we do see needs that are plentiful? How do we best invest our resources towards that end? So we should do some self-assessment. We should pray for a generous heart. We should pray for opportunities to be generous. And lastly, we should plan to be generous. Man, this sounds so unspiritual, doesn't it? Plan to be generous. I've told you guys a little bit about my story. For circa 25 years of my life, I had zero plan for generosity. I had zero plan, I had zero intentionality, I had zero thoughtfulness, I had zero uh, even desire to do so. And if I'm honest, I look back over those years and I feel kind of ashamed of how I spent those resources. And I think, man, what could have been if I had taken the money that God had given me and actually done with it something that maybe he wanted me to do with it instead of spending it all on myself? And in God's mercy, there's forgiveness for that, right? So if you've screwed up your finances, number one, know you're in good company. And probably more than just me in the room, by the way. (laughs) You're in good company and there's forgiveness for that. There's grace for that. And uh, the good news is that God doesn't uh, love us because of our past productivity or because of our current productivity or because of our future productivity. It's a plan to be generous. Spontaneous generosity is not better, is not somehow more spiritual than generosity that's planned. Sometimes, you know, we think uh, it it feels, you know, something maybe feels more spirit-led if it's spontaneous. Uh, The reality is that you, you plan things that are important to you. You look at your budget at home and you plan for things that are important to you. Uh, I know for a fact that there are some of you, including our family, we have a trip vacations line in our, in our budget. 
it's important enough to us that we say, yeah, we should plan for this. If you think about maybe retirement or uh, taking care of yourself for the future, that's something you, you say, this is important enough to me that I'm going to plan for it. What would it say about our generosity? What would it say about our giving to the work that God is doing if we have zero plan for it? We plan for how we're gonna go on vacation and how we're going to enjoy God's good creation, but we don't have a plan for how we're going to use God's resources for the advance of his kingdom. We have to plan to be generous. And a subset of that is plan for unplanned generosity. Right, because I know some of you, and and I've heard this from you, where it's like there's people like me who are more like, okay, here's all the things, I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna plan these opportunities, and then someone else is like, yeah, but then what if a need comes up spontaneously? And I wanna give to that, but I've already planned where everything's gonna go, what do I do then? Well, you plan for unplanned generosity. You plan a part of the money that you've set aside to be generous and just to give away, you plan a part of that money as saying, yeah, I don't really know what it's gonna go for. Surprise me, God. Who this month? I've got this much money planned to be generous. God, who's someone that you want me to give money to this month? Maybe they have a need. Maybe they don't have a need. Maybe it would be good of you to just give money to someone else for no other reason than that you want to give money to them because you love them. Plan for unplanned generosity. So these are all things that we can put into practice in our lives Like I said, some of these may be more or less helpful for you, and that's okay. Uh, But this is something of, I think, maybe a a place to start. Place to start, and from here, we have to take it the next step in in the context of our own personal families. uh, Discern what it looks like for us to grow in generosity. But as we close today, as we come to the communion table, I want to remind us once again that we are generous because God has been generous to us. We can never cultivate a life of generosity if we do not have a heart and a life that is grounded in the fact that God has been generous to us. The clearest demonstration of God's generosity is the cross, where God the Father generously gave us his son. He didn't have to do that for us. God generously gave us his son. God the Son took on human flesh, identified with us in our humanity, accompanied us in our humanity, and generously gave himself over for us. He submitted himself to the will of the Father, knowing that it was the will of the Father to crush him so that we could be saved. And so we see in God the Father and God the Son, we see everything about who God is leads us to to see his generosity. And that's what cultivates a life of generosity in us. That's what we celebrate at the communion table, is that God has been generous to us. And as you come forward today, and as you receive the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, I want to encourage you that when, when you you receive that, that is in a way God saying to you, I've not just been generous generically to all of humanity, which he has. In part, that is God saying, I have been so generous to you. And as you receive, God wants you to understand. God wants your heart to be deeply grounded in the generosity and the love that he's poured out on you. And so we get to experience some of that here and now, in this meal that we get to partake of. And then Jesus also promised us that the new heaven and new earth, there will be a wedding feast and we will begin to, we will get to feast with God the way that we are designed. And this little meal that we participate in is so nourishing for us and it's also nothing compared to the reality to which it points.
And so we get to celebrate Christ today and also look forward to his coming again to share this meal together with him then. As you come to the communion table, I want to invite you to take just a few moments for a silent conf- confession and reflection. <laughs>